Well, do please turn back with me to the book of Esther, chapter 4, page 412 in the Visitor's Bibles. Last time we left this book, the fate of God's people was hanging in the balance. Their death warrant had been signed, and the king sat down to party with the one at his right hand. And Esther chapter 4 verse 1 continues, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a great and bitter cry. And he came before the face of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in each province after province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Judeans, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was seized by a deep fear. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who he'd appointed to attend her, and she ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Judeans. And he gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction so that he might show it to Esther and report it to her and command her to go to the king and plead for his favor and seek it from him on behalf of her people. So Hathach came back and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, he has one law to put them to death, except for the one to whom the king holds out a golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape out of all the Judeans. For if indeed you keep silence at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Judeans from another place. But you and your father's house will perish but who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Judeans found in Susa and hold a fast for me and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will fast in the same way. And with this, I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I die, I die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, who 
came once full of loving humility and who will come again in glorious majesty and who sits now in between at the right hand of the Father. Come now, we pray, and feed your people through your word. Lord, you are the dear desire of every nation, the joy of every longing heart. So would you be our desire and our joy and our longing. Amen. Sometimes to process a tragedy that is incomprehensibly big, we have to bring it down to something small. Esther chapter 4 opens with the lives of an entire people hanging in the balance, every man, woman, and child of the people of Judah, no matter where they've run to across the known world, condemned to death by the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. But we can't really process terror on that level, can we? It's something our minds protect us from feeling. How on earth do we enter into what God's people are facing here? Well, what the writer does is bring it down to one man in verse 1 who represents the wall of grief in verse 3. And that makes it small enough to become real for us. Maybe we can start to feel the sheer powerlessness. Maybe we need to bring it closer still. One person you love, just one, the child you would give your life for in a heartbeat, lying on a hospital bed, and there's nothing you can do. Everything is a blur. She's surrounded by people in scrubs and masks and gloves, one compressing her chest, another fighting for an IV, someone shouting orders, two or three of them are rushing you out of the room, pushing you down into a chair, closing the door. And now the people who will make the decisions are on the other side, and you can't get to them, you can't speak to them, you have no idea really what's going on. Some of us have been there, haven't we, on one side of the door or the other. I've only really had one very little taste of being shut on the outside. One time when things started moving very fast and it all got out of control and I was only left there waiting for a few minutes. But those few minutes were the most powerless of my life. When it's your child, your wife, your mother, whose life hangs in the balance, you would move heaven and earth for them if you could, except you can't. You can't even get in the room with the ones who'll make the decisions. Well, if you woke up in the Persian Empire that morning that the decree was issued, you would move heaven and earth if you could just to get one child out. And if it meant you had to stay behind and put them on a ship and never see them again, you'd do it without thinking but there's nowhere safe for that ship to go. And worse than that, there's not even anyone to fight with or protest to or to hear your cry. The king of all lands has signed your death warrant and then sat down to drink inside the citadel without even asking your name. 
And he lives in a place where your cries can never reach. In fact, he lives in a place, verse 2, where your cries aren't even allowed, where nobody's allowed to enter his presence with a black tie around their neck or with a tear running down their cheek. He lives in a land of happiness and make-belief, and he is the only one with the power to save your people. And yet you can't even get in the room with him. The door is closed, and you don't have a voice. There's one emotion the writer of this chapter has worked very skillfully to evoke. Has it registered? It's a sense of exclusion. It is very, very well done. Where are we? Well, we're watching from the outside with Mordecai, shut outside the gate of the king, all the while having to communicate and hear this story through the messengers running back and forth to someone on the inside, slowly, agonizingly filling her in on the story, back and forth, back and forth. And even she, on the inside, she even is excluded from the real seat of power, right at the heart of it all. The king hasn't called for me these 30 days, verse 11. A king of all kings who doesn't want to see and doesn't want to hear the sorrows of his people. While the drama falls in two, divided by those back and forths of these messengers and intermediaries. And so we'll look at both halves before we step back a little bit to ask what we're being taught. First, in verses 1 to 9, there are the ears that tears couldn't reach. All over the empire, verse 3, there is deep and terrible grief, except in the one place that needs to be heard, inside the palace of the king. And this isn't simply sorrow or fear. There's something much darker than that behind it. Weeping and lamenting is something you do over the dead. This is a requiem for the gospel. The whole line of promise, the whole people of Judah are now living under the sentence of death. And perhaps the bitterest thing about it is that many of them understand that this isn't simply happening because of a maniacal tyrant like Haman. Why do people put on sackcloth and ashes in the Bible? Well, to mourn, yes, but more deeply, to repent. In fact, the language in verse 3 sounds almost exactly like what God's people have been called to do for centuries now by the prophets, to fast and weep and lament to God over their sin. Because who knows, said Joel, perhaps this God who's blessing you once knew so well, perhaps he'll turn and relent and show mercy even now. And so there's recognition here, not only that this is a tragedy, but that the people of the loving gospel God are ultimately to blame. They should never have even been here in Persia. Again, God's name is never mentioned in this chapter. You don't fast, though, in the Bible just to lose weight. You fast because your soul needs to come before that God in urgency and dependency with repentance 
And Mordecai does that, not just in the privacy of his own home, but right out in public. In the midst of the city, he cries a great and bitter cry, identifying with this people under judgment. And he takes his cry, his protest, as close as he is allowed to go to the seat of power, right up to the gate of the king where he usually works. But because of his sin, he can't come in. This is a king who doesn't want to see anything sad, who doesn't want to hear anything broken, living in his world of make-believe happiness, which nothing is allowed to sully. Now, we might think, come on, Mordecai, you're not going to win anyone over like this, wailing and shouting and making a nuisance of yourself in filthy clothes. Normally, he can get inside. He works inside. But Mordecai here is just doing the one thing he can do. And what he's picturing is the reality. Look at me like this. This is what a broken, condemned human being looks like. Sometimes as respectable Christians, we get very upset, don't we, when other sorts of Christians protest and make too much of a scene. Maybe we see Christians holding up pictures in the streets that we find distasteful. And something in us wants to tut. They get a better hearing if instead of those pictures of mangled babies, they showed something more polite. But what if they're faced with a world that doesn't want to hear? What else can they do? At least what they're showing is honest. And so here is Mordecai visibly identifying with this grieving people of God. But now because he's one of them, he's cut off from the only place where his protest might count. And so the question is, is there anyone inside who's willing to share in the grief of God's people and bring those tears before the king? Well, Esther is told about the scene, and presumably that's what Mordecai knew would happen, and her first response is deeply promising. The language in verse 4 is really strong. She's rocked, seized with a deep fear. All she knows at this point is that something has obviously happened to Mordecai, but it must be something very serious. Here, though, at last, inside the citadel is someone who cares. And so she rushes to do the natural thing, to clean him up, to cover it over, to get him dressed. But it's not going to be that easy, is it? Mordecai refuses the clothes because he knows that this kind of grief is not something that can just be covered. This is something that is going to cost very deeply to fix. And so the messenger is sent out. Mordecai can't come into the court so long as he's clothed like a dying man, and Esther can't leave. And so everything has to happen slowly and painfully through Hathach, this eunuch. And all of it is building up the suspense to Esther's agonizing moments of decision. Mordecai explains what has happened. Notice the painful word in verse 7. What has happened to him? This struggle between Mordecai and his opponent, Haman, it's spilled over now. 
and all of his people are suffering for it. Maybe he feels to blame. But just like that plot he uncovered in chapter 2, notice Mordecai is very well informed. God has placed his man where he needs to be. Somehow he knows exactly what was paid when his people were sold to death. He has a copy of their death warrant to pass on. And for the last time in this book, he has a command for Esther as her guardian. This isn't a fight she sought, but sometimes things happen, don't they? And the duty it places on us to do the right thing becomes unavoidable. And she now has to be the one, he says, the only possible one to go to the king and plead for mercy on behalf of her people. Now think for a moment about what that is asking of her. For five years now, she's lived as Queen Esther, favorite of the Persian court, protected, honored, provided for her whole existence has been about that world. But look at those last five English words in verse eight and think about what they'll mean. On behalf of her people. They will mean owning that race of people on the outside, condemned to death, saying, I belong with them. That irrevocable death warrant, that applies to me. I am not just Esther, the queen. I am Hadassah, a covenant-breaking daughter of the God of grace. And so I belong with them in sackcloth and ashes, in the street dirt, on the gallows. As so Hathach takes that summons to her back inside in verse 9, while we wait to hear, what will she decide? Is there someone who belongs on both sides of the door, who's willing to identify with the condemned and also with those in a realm where sorrows and rags don't belong? Will our cries ever be heard in there? Well, not unless someone is willing to be a go-between and speak for us before the ears that tears can't reach. Which brings us to Esther's decision in verses 10 to 17, the choice to be their voice. Hathak is sent back out to Mordecai in verse 10 with her reply. And for the rest of the chapter, he's left unnamed. The messengers fade into the background. And from now on, it's relayed almost like a direct conversation between Esther and Mordecai, which throws all of the focus onto the struggle in Esther's heart and her eventual decision. Because there is a war raging inside Esther now. We've seen this war on the cosmic scale already, the battle between two lines of humanity. We've seen it play out between two human beings, a son of Jacob and a son of Esau. And now that battle plays out inside one woman carrying two identities. It's even there in Mordecai's Hebrew turn of phrase as he challenges her in verse 13. Esther, he says, do not imagine within your soul that you can escape this battle. 
Don't even toy with that idea. But her first reaction in verse 11 is very understandable, isn't it? It's almost one of shock as the cost of all this begins to sink in. Mordecai, you know what you're asking me to do, don't you? You know what this will mean. The whole world knows. And that was true, by the way. I don't normally read Persian history for fun, but it was helpful to get myself a little bit inside this world over the last few weeks. And it turns out there is a very good reason for the whole world to know what happens when you barge in on the King of Kings. Even the queen doesn't have access like that. The whole system of Persian power and prestige was built on exclusivity. It's why the harem is so exclusive. And then within that, the seat of the king shut off from everyone. But in chapter one, remember, we met seven men who did have access. Those seven wise men who saw the face of the king. And that was a position that went back to Ahasuerus' father, King Darius. He was one of seven men, the histories tell us, who plotted together to kill the king and put one of themselves on the throne. And part of the deal was that all seven would have complete access at all times to whoever got the crown. Well, the deal lasted for a bit until one of those seven, a man named Interphanes, walked in on Darius while he was with his concubine. And in fact, he was so insistent that he had a right to be there that he chopped off the nose and ears of the poor servants who tried to warn him. And that was how, very publicly, that man, Interphanes, and his entire family ended up on one of those Persian spikes You see, even the few people, the seven people who have the right to the king's presence could be taking their lives in their hands by exercising that right. And so Esther is absolutely right in verse 11, isn't she? This is a terrifying thing she's being asked to do, and the whole world knows it. You're asking me to lay down my life just for the chance to speak for my people. Maybe the king will take pity and hold out that golden scepter, and maybe he'll let me live. But what use is a mediator who the king doesn't even really love? He hasn't called me into his rooms for 30 days now. That's what we're banking on. All he's ever really cared about, remember, is her looks, and it seems like even those are starting to lose his interest. Well, Mordecai hears her reply, and then he answers from verse 13 with the words that will make him famous. Notice the one thing he doesn't do is deny that this will come at a tremendous cost to Esther. What he says is something far, far more direct and honest. She might be an orphan, and she might be all alone in this, inside the palace, but at least she has someone willing to challenge her in a way that is absolutely straightforward and direct. Wouldn't it be good for us to pray for friends like that, for parents like that, who love us and are willing to be this direct with us? 
Esther, this is no time to toy in your soul with the idea of distancing yourself from God's people. In fact, now is the moment to come out of yourself entirely and give yourself for them. Either you stand with them now, verse 14, or you keep silence and you'll die with them anyway. There's no escaping who you are. And there are some people who see that as some sort of veiled, manipulative threat by Mordecai. If you don't do this, I will out you as a Jew and you'll go down with the rest of us. To me, that's utter nonsense because we've seen his very real concern for her already in this book and her deep fear over him. These two love each other. They trust each other. So what does Mordecai know that lets him speak this certainly? about what her fate would be if she ducks this moment. Well, he knows what God has promised. God has promised a king from Judah who will reign forever. And so he knows that the gospel itself is never in doubt. And it's not as if it depends on us, that gospel promise. He knows that if you don't do this, God will bypass you and find another means. It's a promise. But Mordecai also knows that if we won't stand with God's people and God's covenant as the people of God's promised king, if we won't stand with them, then we write ourselves out of this story. Those who bless you, said God, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. If she walks away, from this God and his covenant, the covenant she was born into, she'd be walking away from life anyway. And in that at last, at least, we're all the same, aren't we? Sometimes a conflict comes our way that is inescapable. Maybe we're offered the thing in this world that we most want, but we shouldn't have. And we have to ask, in this struggle, Will I own the mark of my baptism? Will I own the Jesus who claims me? Or will this struggle be the reason I walk away? Christopher Ash calls this one of the strangest paradoxes of the gospel. The only safe place for Esther to stand is with the very people whose existence is threatened. And so this decision right now will be the one who defines who Esther is for the rest of eternity. The funny thing about God's will for us, though, is that it doesn't often come wrapped in a bow with a big, obviously spiritual choice. Notice the missing item in verse 14, Mordecai's speech. The most famous line in this book, and it it seems like Mordecai's completely fluffed it, doesn't it? Who knows? Perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's like when people tell you they fell pregnant. Have you heard that one? As if it just happened to them, out of the blue. Or the Disney movie, Encanto, where time and again, the characters are told, we've been given a gift. And yet somehow nobody ever asks who gave it. Maybe you were brought somehow, to where you are, Esther, for this moment. But who brought you? 
Well, that is the big deliberate literary device of this whole book again, isn't it? You make much of the sovereign God by making him seem invisible. Maybe we imagine that the biggest spiritual choices we face will be over really obviously spiritual things. It will so clearly be God's hands. Often, though, in the moment, it doesn't feel like that. Esther is a frightened, isolated young woman making a terrifying choice with a million things going on in her head. And even if she risks everything, it's barely going to move the needle for the Judeans. All she has is an empty gesture before she dies with the rest of them for a king who doesn't care. But the point is that this decision right now is what it often looks like to be at the sharp end of God's saving purposes for the world. Scared and weak. But she knows the right thing to do. The one little thing she can do in this moment Who knows if God will use Esther and protect her? Who knows? You see, most of the time, even these great figures in salvation history never get promises that specific. And we certainly don't. Who knows if God will let me walk into the flames or protect me through them? Who knows? But if the good God brought us here to this moment then maybe staying safe isn't ultimately what matters. Verse 15, then, is the moment we see who Esther really is, the moment she grows decisively and bravely into God's purposes. And it is a real moment of character growth for her. This is the first moment in the book where she commands Mordecai, so far very lovingly and respectfully. It's always been the other way around, but there is authority and purpose that comes with embracing God's will. From now on, she'll be referred to again and again as Queen Esther. We've only heard that once so far, but she's grown into her destiny. And this is the first time that she explicitly identifies herself with the people of God. Go gather up every Judean and fast for me for three days and nights, and inside the palace, I and my young women will do exactly the same as you. Pray for me as I pray for you, as I speak for you, and if I die, I die. Surely that's the moment there in verse 16, the moment we know for sure that Esther belongs to the true king of kings. That's when we know that she's counted the cost. God's people have their mediator now, don't they? Someone who's willing to lay everything down for them, not just her life, but her glory her position, her comfort. And humanly speaking, she's been the only hope. But until now, we've actually had no idea where she truly is spiritually. We've had a few clues. Now, though, we see for sure that even though Esther has never heard of Jesus, 
she knows him. She's willing to follow him in advance. And so weak and terrified though she is, she will lay everything down. She will stand before the most powerful throne in the world and plead on behalf of her people. The choice to be their voice. Well, we've learned two big things so far in this chapter. We've learned that God's people living under the sentence of death desperately need a mediator. And we've learned that being that mediator will come at a terrible cost. And so at one level, the story's just taken a massive leap forward, hasn't it? Chapter one and two, the stage was set. Chapter three, the crisis was revealed. And chapter four, our heroine steps out of the shadows at last. At last, we have that mediator we desperately need. And because Esther's choice in this chapter is so dramatic and tense, it's almost always the moment people see as the big hinge in this story, the decision that history hangs on. The only problem is that that's not actually how the story plays out. This is certainly a big defining moment in Esther's life, and God will use her through this choice as his means of saving the world. But the turning point in this book doesn't come for two more chapters of suspense through a series of events that no human being could ever engineer, not Esther and not anyone else. And I think that is very important. Esther's decision here is very, very brave. But Esther's human decision is not the big hinge in God's rescue story. And when we look closely at this chapter, I think we discover that she knows that herself perfectly well. What has she told us here in so many different ways She's told us that she is actually totally inadequate as the mediator God's people need. We need someone interceding for us who the king loves, who he'll listen to, who we can trust will win his favor. Esther isn't even allowed in his sights unless he calls, and he hasn't wanted her in his bed for a month now. And anyway, this is the kind of king who doesn't care. We need a mediator who's powerful, who can argue confidently and persuasively and carry the day. What's the first command that Esther gives? Fast for me, day and night. What does that mean in the deliberately unspiritual language of this book? It means pray your socks off for me. Because if I'm going to do this, I am totally dependent on a sovereign God. I am not enough on my own. But in a very strange way, that seems to be what actually frees her to do what she has to do, the reason she could risk. And I wonder if this is the big teaching point for us. What is the reason she found to let her risk everything? And where do we find the courage to do the one little thing we can do when our turn comes in obedience to the gospel? Well, Esther in this book is not primarily 
a picture of you and me. First and foremost, she is a not very impressive picture of Jesus, the much, much better mediator who stands before a much more caring king. There will be no tears in heaven when we belong there. Just like this court, they will be banished forever. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that there is one in heaven who pays attention to our tears right now. The Savior who loved not his own life, even unto death, who can represent his sinful people having borne the sentence that we were under. And not weak and trembling and afraid like this, but in total confidence before a father who loves him and who loves us, he can plead peace for you and me. And if Esther knows anything by verse 16, it's that that is not her. This rescue is entirely in God's hands. Unless he turns the heart of an uncaring king, then her sacrifice will just be a great big futile gesture. And yet strangely, that seems to be exactly what she needs to know. God's heroes and heroines don't have to save the day. He does that, not us. We don't have to be adequate or sufficient or even very brave. Just trust him with the one thing in front of us that we can do. Isn't it strange in verse 14 how God's sovereignty, the fact he doesn't need us even, is actually an encouragement to act. We almost always talk about it as if it was the opposite. Why pray if God already knows what we're asking for? Why evangelize if God saves whoever he wants to? For Esther, it's the exact opposite. God will use whatever human means he chooses to use. He doesn't need me to be the big hero. I don't need to be Jesus. He'll make this right, whatever happens to me. So why not just trust him and do what Jesus would do? What do we need to know when we are guilty and scared and inadequate and feel utterly out of our depth? We need to know that we have a voice before the throne of all power, one who pleads for us before a king of love, the only hero who truly had to be a hero. And praise God he was for you and for me. So let's bow our heads and worship him for it. Let's pray. Gracious, loving God, we thank you that you hear our tears. We praise you that right now, before you stands the son you love, He didn't simply risk his life for us, but spent every drop for us so that the unfit and the undeserving and the condemned could have a voice before the king who cares. 
Father, would we rest so secure in your forgiveness and in your love for us in Jesus that we too would be freed to lay everything else down, to stand with the disgraced and follow Christ. For we ask it all for his sake and in his name. Amen.